that was capable of extracting all the best on a one single lab, which is not easy. People tend to get too excited or stressed by the one lap qualifying. This was one of the things which uh, made me very special. Welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is a winner on and off the racetrack. He spent more than a decade racing in Formula One, and he's now a big player in the rather more sedate pursuits of winemaking. I first met him at the Monaco Grand Prix in 1996, just after he'd taken pole position for the Formula 3 support race. And I reported on each and every one of the 252 Grand Prix starts that followed. I'm talking about Jano Trulli. Jano was a brilliantly fast racing driver, in pure pace terms, arguably one of the best during his years in the sport. He won only the one race at Monaco in 2004, but he put in many sensational qualifying performances, often seemingly outperforming his machinery. I remember that being the case during his Jordan years in particular. He had some great teammates along the way, most notably Jensen Button in 2002 and Fernando Alonso in 2003 and 4. And he had some great team bosses. He raced for Alain Prost's eponymous team early on and then Eddie Jordan. And for 10 years, he was managed by one of the sport's most colourful characters, Flavio Briatore. Jano has some wonderful stories to tell, and he's fascinating about so many aspects of his career, including his old sparring partner, Alonso, the Toyota F1 team he scored many podiums for, and his legendary qualifying speed. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jano, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to see you. It's been 10 years since you last raced in Formula 1. I can't believe it. What have you been up to in that time? I've been doing a lot of things uh, for my life, for my family. As you, everybody knows, I've been looking after the wine business, which has been doing very, very well until the COVID uh, arrived. And then some other business, but as well, I've been growing up family. I have now three kids, you know, two boys and uh, one little girl of six years, Veronica. And... Uh, out of two boys, uh, unfortunately for me, I would say I have one Enzo, which is also racing, uh, karting uh, for a few years. So I've been following him and supporting him through karting. And now he, he started racing in a uh, single-seater car and he just won the, um, the Formula 4 UAA Championship. Well, of course he was going to become a racing driver. A, he's a truly, and B, he's got a great name in Enzo. True. <laughs> That's a fast name. It's true what you say, but it's uh, not that uh, straightforward. I mean, uh, as you know, uh, we, we have had a chat a long time ago. Uh, I always wanted my my kids, my son, to do something else rather than uh, being a driver. Uh, and not because I don't like the sport. I, I actually love this, the motorsport. But just because I didn't want them to follow father's footsteps and trying to, let's say, face always... Uh, the problem of being in this feather shadow. But apparently Enzo is not suffering of it. He's actually a very nice, relaxed uh, son and he's taking it easy and he's actually even better than me. So let's <laughs> well, be happy with that. Do you know, when I, I spoke to Lucio uh, Cavuto, your, your uh, I suppose, business partner, we can call him. 
Lucio said, Tom, I have to tell you, I have a new driver on my books and he's even better than Yano. And I said, really? Who's that? And he said, it's Enzo, his son. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's very exciting to watch him coming through the ranks. He looks very special. You mentioned the wine as well. Have you had some good vintages in the last few years? Yes, we've been growing a lot since, uh, you know, last time you probably taste our wine. We became um, worldwide one of the most important winery. Obviously, we're still very small, uh, but for an Italian uh, winemaker, we are very, very important. You know, for 10 times in a row, we got very good awards from Italian uh, magazines, and uh, we have been exporting all around the world and growing, growing a lot. Uh, we have had a lot of uh, work to do uh, back at the winery. We have extended our range of wine and we have extended also our uh, worldwide market. So a lot has been done, but uh, a lot is still to be done. <laughs> How involved do you get in the winemaking process? I'm not really involved in the wine process, in, in the making of the wine, because we have people which do this business. We, Me and Lucio, we are more looking after this business and make sure we got the right people in the right places and uh, giving. Uh, the right people, um, the right comments and feedback from our market. So uh, we are more running the business, basically uh, looking after the contacts and the feedback and the markets around the world. But back at the, at the winery, there are people which are, you know, specialized in the business. And we are, we, our, our goal is to give them the tools and everything they need to create every year a better wine. For our clients. And can you give us an idea of how many bottles you're producing a year now? Around a million bottles per year. Okay. We have grown a lot. A lot depends, uh, of course, uh, from the markets that you, you, you have and you touched uh, around the world. Nowadays, it's a hard time, hard time for everyone, you know, with COVID, because simply uh, restaurants are closed, are shut everywhere. So our our situation is very similar to everyone's situation. So at the moment, we, we need to try to get out of uh, this, um, this difficult time and restart our business. Nevertheless, we're still working well. We are still working uh, back at the winery. We are still expanding uh, as we bought some more lands uh, and we are doing some work. We are actually... I don't know if you remember, we had a very old villas dated uh, 1793, and uh, probably now we decided uh, to uh, um, overhaul the villa completely, uh, have a new, a new, new house. So uh, we never stop, like Formula One. We never stop. What an incredible story! A million bottles a year, and the good thing about wine is that it improves with age. So when the world opens up again, you're off. True. Some some of them, yes, of course. Some others are young ones. So for, for this season, uh, it will be hard. It will be hard as for everyone else. But um, we don't give up. We know that uh, things will change, have to change. And we, we need to stay positive. Fantastic. Well, look, when we think of Yano Truly and Formula One, I have so many memories from your career. What do you miss most about Formula One? I miss racing because racing has been always part of my life. Competition, the fight, but as well the high level profile of working. 
and methodical working. I've been always good at what I, I was doing because I rated myself uh, rather than a, a very strong driver just by driving, uh, a very good driver in setting up the car, in working with the teams, in trying to improve things. And this was, for me, something very special because there was the work, testing, uh, choosing the right uh, path uh, and the right direction, giving the right feedback to the engineers in order to develop the car and make a better car. This is what I'm missing. And of course, uh, racing. I have to say that um, anyway, my time is past. Uh, you know, I am now 46. Uh, I spend more than 30 years of my life driving between karting and Formula One. So there is also a time when you have to say, okay, my time is gone. I've done what I've done. And now it's time for someone else younger to step in and prove that it's better than me. So I don't regret anything. I don't actually miss uh, uh, today's Formula One because uh, it's not my Formula One. It's not my era. I, I can't see myself driving this kind of car. But I can see that young drivers are passionate about this Formula One. So when I hear people saying that ah, before was better, now is worse. Yeah, there are a few things that probably could be better in Formula One, but there is always the same passion and the same amount of work to do in order to deliver a very good result in Formula One. Never is nothing is easy in F1. I completely agree about, you know, the young drivers living in the present. But having said that, I'm fascinated to know at what level do you think you could still compete now at the age of 46? And you'll see where I'm going with this question because we're going to talk about Fernando Alonso in the minute. I mean, obviously there's the neck and things like that. But in terms, do you think you could, with, with a little bit of testing, get straight back in and be there or thereabouts? Honestly talking, I believe uh, mentally I know what I can do. I probably can do even better in few areas because I'm technically believe I'm more prepared than many, many more young drivers that we have now. But physically, probably I couldn't do that. And not because uh, I'm not fit enough. It's because the age and, and, and the age, you know, goes on. And obviously there are things that change. And now that I have to train with my son, I found it difficult. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> so, well, I, I, I totally understand what you are talking about. But Fernando is almost 10 years younger than me. Let's talk about Alonso then. Do you think he's still got it at the age of, what is he? He's 39 now. He turns 40 in July. Is there anything about him that makes you think he won't be competitive? I've been talking with Fernando recently. Uh, you know, I, I have to say something. Uh, uh, Fernando, okay, as I said, he's 10 years younger than me. So this is already a good thing for him. But Fernando, differently from me, in his head, He's still eager to drive. He has nothing else in his mind rather than driving. I can't see him failing on what he, he will be doing. And uh, he's still very fit. I could see him really training a lot. So I think he's, he's still got the passion to jump in the car and go for it. Try to deliver and try to get the best out of him and out of the car. The big question mark is not probably... How good will be Fernando? The real question mark will be how good will be his car in order to put Fernando in the position 
to fight for the top. Because I, I have very little doubt about uh, Fernando, but just simply because I could see him still extremely motivated. I saw him uh, one and a half, two months ago. We met in Barcelona because um, we were testing with my son and he was there. We spent half an hour chatting and I could see him. Yeah, he's, he's older, but still in his mind, there is still one target, one, you know, he's still passionate about what, what he's doing. So let's cross our finger and hope that Renault can deliver a good car, good enough car to give Fernando the chance to make us enjoy the Grand Prix racing for the 2021. Of all the teammates you had, and Jensen Button was one, another world champion, Ralph Schumacher, was Fernando, where did he stack up? Was he the best teammate you ever had? I must admit that I always had very good teammates, uh, starting from, um, I don't know, let's say, Fernando Alonso, yes, Jensen Button, yes, Frenzen as well. And also Olivier Panis, when he was younger, he was he was good at. For sure, Fernando had something more special than the others. It's not fair to say he was better than others. But from Fernando, you can always suspect something special. It's been a pleasure for me to, to drive and work with him. It's still funny for me to see him driving and staying in Formula 1 this year. But um, definitely, he was one of the best and he proved it. Did he ever play mind games with his teammates? Was he ever sort of playing with you somehow outside of the car? Yes, of course. Fernando is this kind of driver. And especially when he, when he was growing up and he was trusting more and more in himself uh, when he felt he could uh, have an edge on myself or any other uh, teammate. Uh, yes, Fernando is one of those drivers which play mind games and political in this team. But he's also part of uh, a driver, a top driver, which uh, eventually want to be at the top of the team and want to be the number one. So I don't blame him. I, I'm not, uh, I actually am not like him. I always uh, prefer to prove myself uh, with the results there, rather than the politics. And probably this, is, this was one of my mistakes. But what kind of stuff does someone like Fernando Alonso do? I mean, nothing really special, but of course, he always tried to get the best out of the team and politics inside the team for himself. Uh, so all of the new bits on his car before the teammate, that kind of thing? Or? He, he always tried um, to centre the attention around himself. And you have to expect this from a, a top driver anyway, because a top driver always thinks that he is the best, he wants to get the best, and he was all the attention for himself. No doubt, Fernando Alonso is a brilliant racing driver, but were you quicker than him over one lap? I think there are very little people that were uh, quicker than me, probably on one qualifying lap. I think uh, Fernando also admitted it a few years ago, and many other uh, drivers. But unfortunately, you don't win races just by qualifying. You also need to, to deliver during the races. And, uh, and Fernando, I think, was very strong in race condition. I was the kind of driver which, uh, as I said before, very technical, extremely methodical in setting up the car and making sure that I had the right balance at the right time. And I was capable to get the best out of the car when I had the car I wanted. But in the races, of course, we have had uh, a few occasions where definitely I was not uh, up to speed. Uh, 
not, not as much as people say or my things, but for sure, Fernando was capable of overcoming problems or set up or balance uh, change in the car more than me. To be honest, uh, I can see Fernando's attitude in my son. And I told him, I told Fernando, I say, this is not a truly, this is definitely different from me because when the race comes, it's absolutely unbelievable. But what made you such an expert qualifier? You know, people have been asking me and uh, I believe that, as I say, I was very good in setting up the car, but my strength was more mentally by the fact that I knew exactly and I was a very good feeling on what was track condition, tire condition, car condition at that particular moment. And I was capable of extracting all the best on a one single lap, which is not easy because people tend to get too excited or stressed by the one lap qualifying and will never get the best out of it. While I was capable to play around a 99% of accuracy. This was probably one of the things which uh, made me very special. And the fact of having a, a new tires always give you the chance to extract the best out of the car, which is different. When you use old tires, it's very, very different. You know, when you have new tires, in order to do a perfect lap, you know that there is only one point where you have to break, one point where you have to pass and put your, um, your wheels, and there is only one line. And so I was very good in doing that. Can you tell me what you think your best ever qualifying lap was? Is it one of those four poles or is it another lap like that? Remember when you were second on the grid at Monaco in 2000? That was another brilliant lap. Is there one that stands out in your mind? Honestly, Tom, I've done so many that I, it's hard for me to remember. Uh, even when I was at Toyota, I was qualifying sometimes six, seven or eight. And I was putting in a fantastic lap. So it's hard to point out one lap. Monaco was was a good lap, but I tell you, I promise you, I had so many good laps, even before or even after when I was driving driving uh, for Toyota. So I can't really say, I can name one. Well, look, can I talk to you about your weekend of weekends, Monaco 2004? You start on pole, you win the race. It took eight years to get that first win. When you look back at it now... Just how much pride and pleasure does it give you? Pleasure, yeah. I mean, I am the kind of person which uh, doesn't really live on the past. I did it because I wanted to do that. I was a driver and I wanted to be a driver in order to achieve results, to get satisfaction out of what I was doing. But once it's over for me, once the race was over, once I won Monaco, I was already thinking to the next race I could win. It's fantastic. Yes, fantastic to say I won Monaco. And, you know, I did pole position. It's fantastic that people remember this. But I can tell you that I have had a better results or I drove even better in other races than, than Monaco with worse results. So Monaco stands out because of the excellence of the race, the important achievement. But I don't live on that. I, I live on the fact that uh, I, I tell you I, I was capable to drive the car even better in some other occasion. And, and they had so much pleasure in Monaco as well as in many other races. So Monaco, yes, fantastic. It's, it's in everybody's mind. 
it's in my mind, but I don't want to live with the, with the Monaco win. I want to live with all what I've done during my 15 years in Formula 1. That's very well put. But I do want to ask you a, a couple more questions about that weekend because it was a it was a crazy race. I mean, Alonso crashes out, Schumacher crashes behind the safety car in the tunnel. Do you remember? Did you have any hairy moments at all or were you in complete control throughout? I was in, in complete control because uh, I knew that my car was good. I was very strong and I felt comfortable. So the only thing I was not in control was by the fate. Actually, I had to fight a lot to win that Grand Prix because the whole weekend, everybody were waiting for me. Everybody were saying, ah, oh, truly is such a good form. He's got a good car. He's going to go for a pole. He's going to go for a pole. So obviously, everyone was expecting me to be on pole. And I had so much pressure, even inside the team. And I delivered it. Okay, that one step. The second step is, is Iarno going to win the Grand Prix or is he going to have another difficult race? And I made a good start and I pulled away once from my teammate. Then my teammate, they refueled him with two more extra laps than me for the second pit stop. So I had to challenge him again to pull away and get enough gap to stop for the second time. So it was another very strong and qualifying thing in midst thing. So it wasn't easy. And in the, you know that in Monaco, with all uh, bank match, um, uh, all drivers on track and safety cars and everything, you never know how it's going to end up. Okay. And once uh, I stopped for the second time and they came out leading the race, then I thought, well, I think the toughest part is done. Now it's all about uh, concentrate, focus, and not making any mistakes. And then comes out the safety car with Schumacher and Montoya. And I remember very, very well that situation. I was leading the Grand Prix with already a pit stop done while Mon both Montoya and Schumacher had still had to pit. So basically, I was leading. I was following them. And I could notice them being so close each other and waving around. And I thought it's probably better to have a gap because something might happen. And a minute later, they, they crashed each other inside the tunnel, so under the tunnel. So I was smiling at that side inside my helmet because I thought, wow, I got it. And, you know, <laughs> it happened. So it, it's a, such a strange Grand Prix, because we had, I don't know if you remember, we had also a safety car at the beginning of the race, which also didn't help me because the first thing to my race, I had to pull away from Fernando and this first safety car didn't help because basically took three, four, five laps away from my thing. So all the Grand Prix, it wasn't as easy as people might think. It was actually a big, big challenge, but I managed to get everything right. And the last, the very last thing was last few laps the only thing i had in my mind was don't make any mistakes and please 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 car don't break down <laughs> that was all i had in my mind and the car was fine throughout the car was okay but the tension was very very high well you had jensen button on your gear right on your gearbox now i know it's difficult to overtake at monaco but when you have a driver that close to you 
How can you ignore them? You can't, can you? You can't ignore, but I was managing him. I knew that I had a, a good car. I knew that um, I had the package to win. The only thing I had to do is not making any mistakes. In Monaco, it's difficult to overtake. And even if it was slightly quicker than me, I only had to keep it cool and nothing else. Trulli comes out of Anthony Nogues. He's going to see the man with a checkered flag. And Yano Trulli is going to win his first ever Formula One Grand Prix. There is the checkered flag. Talbot there on the left, Princess Caroline of Monaco on the right. Renier presents the trophy to Yano Trulli. And he is a fully fledged Grand Prix winner at last. I remember there was a, a cheer in the press room as you crossed the line. That was a great moment for me. I have to say, and I have to say thank you to everyone. This uh, shows so much appreciation towards myself as a person and as a driver. So for me, that was one of the Monaco souvenirs that I will hold for myself for the rest of my life. Not the win, but the fact that people really cheered me up because they, they were all waiting for me to win a race including your team boss, Flavio Briatori. He, he was really chuffed as well. What did Flavio say to you after the race? Ah, <laughs> oh, you were lucky to win, he said. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> Yano, how, how would you describe your relationship with Flavio? But with Flavio, it's, it's strange enough because... Flavio is such a nice guy when you don't have to deal with, when you don't have business with. But when you have business with, no matter what, he becomes very difficult. Sometimes he does it purpose. And this is what was happening inside the team. And of course, I was not part of his plan, especially at that moment, because his plan was just to keep Fernando and push Fernando for the future. So... It's a shame that it didn't go the right way. But nevertheless, I have to say thank you for, for Flavio because Flavio was the man who took me in F3. He gave me the chance to win the F3 in the German Championship. And then he, he helped me to move in Formula 1 and then through Formula 1. So I definitely have to thank you, Flavio. But on the other end, of course, I have to say probably I didn't have uh, the right chance at the right time. And he chose another driver to an, a good chance. And, uh, you know, he got it right because Fernando, of course, was a good driver and, you know, eventually they won two championships. But I had to leave ashamed. But this is how you deal with, uh, with Flavio. It's one day you are there and the other day, unfortunately, are, um, you are down and you have to expect this from Flavio. Yeah, no, it was an extraordinary season, 2004, for many reasons. You win in Monaco and yet you don't actually finish the season with Renault. Can you just talk us through the second half of the year and how how did it come to the point that you actually ended up in a in a Toyota at the end of the year? Well, it was very simple. With Flavio, once there was no harmony anymore, and simply because uh, I was not part of his interest anymore. Even as a race winner? Yeah. Even after you'd won in Monaco, you were still not part of the plan? Simply because I was not his driver anymore uh, on the contract side. So you understand what I mean? So he had no more interest with me. Oh, so he managed you for a bit, did he? Yeah, he managed me for 10 years. And then at that particular year, we had to renew the contract. Of course, I wanted to stay with Flavio because I'm the kind of person which is always grateful to people. 
And we were working and talking in order to say to renew the contract in a certain way. But at the end of the day, we, we couldn't find uh, the right compromise or let's say the fair business for each other. I think I know what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> it has, you know, when you when you found a deal, it has to be fair, both sides. Okay. And uh, we couldn't find it. So at the end of the day, I was alone inside the team with Flavio, basically, which didn't want me as a driver and uh, as a person inside the team. So I thought, there is no point staying here because uh, I look, I feel like I'm not welcome anymore. So at one stage, me and Lucio, we went to Flavio and we said, okay, let's, let's finish it. Because if you don't want us to stay here, there is no point us to continue to stay here. So let's stop here. You continue on your side, I continue on my side. And that's it. How are relations now? As I always say, I'm grateful to Flavio, but we are two different persons, very, very different person. Okay, and Flavio lives his life in his way. I live my life in in my way, and uh, uh, I have seen him probably. I can't remember some some time ago, a long time ago. But we live different life, uh, and and I, I is not in the business anymore, or is probably less in the business uh, compared to what it was before. There was no hard feeling, but definitely things could have gone better, in my opinion, with a, a better common sense. You had some pretty flamboyant team bosses, didn't you? You had Flavio, obviously, and Eddie Jordan was another. Me, <laughs> I tell you, I have to say something because people talk about Eddie, you know, crazy and blah, blah, blah. But Eddie was one of my best. Eddie Jordan was my one of my the best person I met in Formula One. If you take it the right in the right way, you can learn many things. And this is what it happened to me. He treated me very well. He was very fair. He was nice person as well, very funny. And when was time to talk about business? We were talking about business. But once once the business was over, you know, we were very good. And I actually I spoke with uh, Eddie two months ago. Two months ago. And I always remember Eddie as a very, very nice person and team boss. That's fantastic. If there's one thing that stood out about Eddie Jordan, what is it? Uh, as I say, he's the kind of person from outside might look uh, totally out of control, but he is not. He's absolutely in control of everything. And he can be very fair, very good, but as well, very funny. If there is one thing that no one can beat on Eddie is in the way he communicates. He knows exactly what you want to hear from him. And he is going to say that. I've learned a lot from Eddie also on the communication side. And was he good at getting the best out of you as a racing driver when it came to what you did inside the car? Yes, yes. He, he has been always supporting me. We have had the two very difficult seasons because it was so obvious that the car was not good enough and the car was breaking down a lot. We had a lot of failure. We lost so many podiums because the car was breaking down and was not reliable. And he's always been supporting me. And he wanted me to stay also for the season after, but I could not stay just because my contract was already signed previously, years before, with Renault. So I couldn't say. But you look back on those two years, 2000, 2001, with great affection. That's what's coming across yes. now. Yes. 
the car, it was a quick car, but the car has, I remember, had two big problems. Reliability, it was unreliable car. It was breaking down a lot. And I don't know why, it was a fantastic car over a one lap. But after three laps, the rear tires were completely gone. And in fact, with both drivers, we could never manage to have a good pace during the race. That was something that we could never get on top of. And of course, then, do you remember the truly train? It's because you'd out-qualify what the, you know, the car right at the front, and then after three laps, everyone would be all over you, wouldn't it? Yeah. And then another team boss I would love to talk to you about was Alain Prost, of course. Very different to both Flavio and Eddie. Different character. Can you just describe your relationship with Alain? Alan was a very important person of my career because, of course, when I joined Formula One and I joined the Prost Grand Prix, I was very young. And having a professor next to you, it was something amazing for me to learn. I was just listening to him every time and I'm trying to understand what he was trying to communicate to me, what he was teaching to me. So... I feel I was very lucky to be part of his, his program, part of the Pro Grand Prix in that particular moment. Because as a young driver, the, the only target for me was, wow, I have Alan Prost in the team, so you just have to learn from him. Every single word he say, you just have to trust him. And that was, in my opinion, very, very good. I wish my son could have such a chance for the future. But as well, my, ch- my son has, has got me. Okay, but the professor is the professor and is someone that he knew exactly what was the car doing, technically prepared. So for me, it was a pleasure to be part of that team, even though at the end of the day, the car wasn't very good. We were working, but it's not one person who makes the car. But while we were working on track and Alain was always at at the track with the drivers, we were all listening in and trying to get the best out of what we had. And of course, it was only four years after he'd won the World Championship, so he was very current still, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was absolutely something very, very special, which it's a special experience for, for any driver. It's a dream. It's just like having Senna or Prost next to you. It's something uh, unbelievable, simply unbelievable. You say the car wasn't much good, and that does probably apply to 98 and 99. But that first car, the 97 car, was competitive. And I remember Austria, or I was there, and you you led the race, and it caused a real stir at the time until it, I think it broke, didn't it? But until then, that was the race where I felt you really arrived as a driver. It was a shame because that season we had a very competitive car, but if you remember well, from mid-season to the end is exactly when I joined more or less the team. We had a lot of reliability problem with the Mugen Honda engine. In fact, what has uh, blown uh, my chance of winning my first race away was the engine, which after 32 laps <laughs> expired. <laughs> and it was a shame because I think Alain Prost's campaign was extremely disappointing, but I have to say Alain was uh, very unlucky in many ways because he, he, he did put a lot of effort in his team. He was trying very hard, but for one reason or another, 
things never turn around in the proper way for him. So the Mugen was unreliable, but then you went to the Peugeot, same thing. Do you feel that with a decent power unit, it could have been a different result? Peugeot, in my opinion, it was not that bad. First season was the 1998, and I personally believe that the chassis uh, was totally wrong. It was the first season where actually the, the team itself was designing and producing a car. And in that particular year, there was a big rule change, technically. And the team itself, the designer, the engineer, got it wrong, got the car wrong. They got the gearbox wrong, and they got um, all the aerodynamics wrong. I remember with these new rules, everybody, every team went on a longer wheelbase while the Prost team was the only team which went on a shorter wheelbase, preventing to make the all aerodynamics work properly. And that was really one of the worst cars I have ever drove. It was such a difficult car. And did you know from the first lap? Can a driver tell from the first lap whether you've got a good one or a bad one? You are right. I remember in... Uh, Okay, I was very young, so obviously not very experienced. Okay, but since the beginning, we understood that the car was extremely difficult, extremely nervous. I remember uh, me and Olivier Panis testing and every time talking to each other and say, <laughs> I found it very hard to drive this car, very, very hard. On the other hand, I have to say that the first time I drove 2009 Toyota, immediately I say, this chassis is a very good chassis. So a driver, especially an experienced driver, understands immediately whether a car has got a good basis or not. You mentioned Toyota. You go there right at the end of 2004. And I certainly felt from the outside looking in that that was the team where you were absolutely central to everything that was going on, more than, much more than Renault, but even more really than Jordan or, or Prost. Would you agree that it was Toyota was your team to all intensive purposes? Absolutely, yes. Toyota was my team, my chance, is where I put all my effort to try to win, to win a race and eventually in my head to win the championship. I feel that at the end of the era, I feel very sorry that I didn't make it. After I retired from Formula One, I can say that uh, there is a, this bite test that I never managed to get a Toyota win. Which, but I tried very hard. Yes, I, I've made some mistakes, but I honestly did try all my best to get Toyota win because I, I did get for Toyota the first pole position, the first podium, the first quickest lap. I've tried everything. We were always missing something to be on, at, at the top. It's a shame. Did it get better each year? And what I'm now going to say is, had they stayed in Formula One for 2010, do you think that would have been the year? Toyota was an extremely good team, which had all the potential and anything and everything to fight for the championship. Okay? I have no doubt about it. But Toyota made a first mistake when in 2005, we had a very good car. We had a very good car. And we struggled at mid-season towards the end just because we were not capable of developing the car as much as the other were doing. 
but this was part of, a, of an experiencing. So you can accept it. But the biggest mistake was to change the technical direction completely from one year to another. And this took a, a step back in the Toyota Formula One project development. So it took two years, almost three, to get back to where we were. And in fact, I strongly believe that the 2009 Toyota was a, a chassis-wise, was a very good car, was in certain circuit, it was a very good car, a top car. We were only missing power. Our engine was not as good as the other engine. And probably if we would have continued, we could have probably improved. But the biggest question mark was always the engine. And on this, unfortunately, I have to say that, that it was our biggest weakness during the, the last two seasons. With a better engine, I am sure we will have won Grand Prix. I'm 100% sure. When you talk about changing the technical direction of the team, are you referring to Mike Gascoigne leaving at the start of 2006? Hadn't Ralph just finished on the podium in Australia and then the next week he was gone? Yeah, because there, is, there was something in the air. Things were, in terms of uh, communication and cooperation between the top manager and Mike, was, was not fine. You know, Mike is a... Tough person. It's not an easy one. It's good at it, but it's not always easy. And unfortunately, they took this uh, decision, but they took it at the wrong time without having a B plan already in place. And this has hit very hard the team because, as you have seen, for us was just a big step back. No matter if Mike was good or bad, but the fact of when you change a leader, and when you change uh, the technical director and all the important people that are working on a car development in a Formula One team, it's never easy to get it back straight away. It takes time. And sometimes you have to plan it in advance, get people in to be ready to take over. And unfortunately, this was, this was a mistake, in my opinion. And of course, for, for Toyota, Toyota has a, a very different way of thinking compared to other Formula One team. Toyota has his own way, the Toyota way, which I respect and uh, proved to be strong in the commercial production of the vehicle. But in F1, this kind of work, this kind of Toyota way doesn't really work needs to be adapted to a Formula One way. And unfortunately, that, that was, in my opinion, the biggest mistake. And how much warning did you get about them pulling out at the end of 2009? It was quite a lot in the air. We had um, a verbal agreement to stay for the team for the next season. But unfortunately, we knew that someone from the top wanted to, to pull the plug. It was, it was in the air. No one in the team was aware of where we were going. And in fact, the proof of what I'm saying is that they designed and they produced the new car for the 2010. The new car was ready to race, but the plug was basically off. So it was a shame and uh, it's part of this business, uh, but it's really a shame for what 
Toyota was doing, especially in the last two years. We, we were going back. We were getting back at the top. And it's a shame to pull the plug like this. But uh, that's you have to respect the decision from, uh, from a Toyota, which anyway is not Formula One. Toyota is a much bigger company than just Formula One. I think Pedro de la Rosa did some Pirelli tyre testing in that 2010 Toyota. And he said it was brilliant. A really, really good car. I know you don't want to hear this now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I have to say that lots of people told me about that. Uh, I have heard that the car was nice. I never managed to eat, not even see the car. But, you know, it's part of the business. And uh, we knew, we knew that uh, Toyota wanted a win, at least a win. That's why I was so desperate in 2009 to get a win. And, but I also have to say, the win was in the pocket if the team would have listened to me. But they didn't listen to me in one particular race, which was Malaysia, where during the race I was second behind Button. And when it was the time to change the tires during um, the shower, I have asked for intermediate tires and they put me on uh, heavy rain tires. While my teammate, which was Timo Glock, was in ninth position, they say they thought it was too risky to get intermediate tires for me. They got intermediate tires for him, which was nine, and he finished second. So that I will never forget because that was one race that we really wasted in the bin for a very wrong pit decision, which I took right and they did it wrong. That was very bad. And had you won that race... That might have changed people's minds at the top of the company about staying in Formula One and, and, and. I'm sure. I'm sure so. And, and if you remember, we did a fantastic race as well in Japan. I came second with a very hard fight with uh, Lewis Hamilton. But at the end of the race, when I was on the podium, I wasn't happy because I knew it was not enough. Not enough to keep Toyota in Formula One. What a horrible feeling that must have been. It was a very horrible feeling because I was playing everything to win the race and, and keep Toyota in Formula One. And so, Jano, where did that leave you at the end of 2009? Suddenly, the big works team had pulled out. It was very late in the day, so all of the other top teams, the seats were taken. What happens next? Did you immediately think about Lotus or did you look at other options? What was going through your mind? For me, you know, there was this uh, Lotus option, which was Caterham option, not really Lotus. But I was really hoping for Toyota to stay because I felt I have someone finish the job there. So I really wanted to stay to carry on and try to give Toyota's first win. And that was absolutely my first uh, option. Then when this uh, Caterham option came up, I took it, but I have to say I did it wrong. I should have stopped there because um, I, I'm the kind of person and driver which doesn't drive for for just the pleasure of drive or the pleasure to get money. I drive for satisfaction. And if I don't get the satisfaction, there is no point sitting in the car, taking the risk and trying to push as much as possible. I was promised many things. I was promised to have a development program, but all the promises were, were completely wrong. And I realized immediately after six months, eight months, that nothing was going to happen. And that was one of the reasons which I, I said very quickly that I didn't want to say, because when I was replaced, actually, 
it was not the team which decided that I was going to be replaced, but it was me that I say, please replace me as soon as possible because there is no point for me to stay here. There is, I, I have no job to do here because you don't have any target to do. And are you referring to, was it Andre Lotterer coming in at Spa? <clears throat> and, uh, I don't remember. No, I remember when at the end of 2011 or beginning of 2012, when they announced uh, it was another driver and... Uh, I was shocked on one side, but on the other end, I say that that was, you know, what I wanted because I didn't enjoy driving a car which was not driving properly. Uh, I had the steering wheel, which you know, with with, with the with the power steering, which never working. I mean, it was horrible to drive, and uh, I was not happy. I was not happy at that time. Well, Yano, let's end this wonderful chat just by looking at the positives. Which were your most enjoyable years in Formula One? I have enjoyed all of, all of what I have, uh, I have done, more or less. There have been people which uh, made me feel better and work better. Like a Toyota, it was nice people. We worked well, but as well when we were in Renault, uh, my mechanics and people, you know, they were all strong and good to me. Uh, as well as when we were uh, working at Prost, I had the pleasure to work with Alain, but I had the pleasure also to work with the fantastic people, which are the mechanics, because the mechanics are the people where you most give your faith, your confidence. You put your life in their hands and they always respected me and they always appreciated what I was doing. So at the end of the day, I cannot say I was happier in one side or on the other. If you talk about the management, yes, I can say that I was happier in one season rather than the other. But the people which I was working every day with, uh, the mechanics and the engineers, I always had more or less a very good relationship. And I all I have to thank them because they looked after me pretty well. Okay. Which was your best season as a driver? Starting from Jordan, I really start to prove I was a very quick driver. I was driving very well. Then I had a chance to drive a good car with Renault in 2004. In Toyota, I believe I had immediately in 2005 a reasonable competitive car and I show very good results taking a pole position and taking a podiums, but the car was not always at the top. But probably one of the best season was the 2009 with Toyota. That was a car which sweetened me most. We were just missing uh, the engine power because chassis-wise, I would say 80% of the time was good. 20% of the time, strangely, was, was not good. Because if you look back at 2009, two Toyota cars were in front row in Bahrain. And two weeks after, in Monaco, where, you know, in Monaco, I believe there is very little doubt on a driver's side on myself. Me and Timo Glock, we were starting right at the back of the grid with the same car. So that was the Toyota 2009, capable of extremely good things, and the next week, capable of being at the back of the pack. <laughs> but nevertheless, when, it, when the car was good, it was a pleasure to drive. Fantastic. Well, Jarno, what a wonderful chat. Thank you so much for your time and best of luck with Enzo. Thank you very much. The next generation truly coming through. What's he going to be racing this year? I mean, he just finished Formula 4. Uh, we are now thinking about what to do during uh, such a strange uh, 
season like COVID because we all know, even Formula One is trying to understand where to go, where, how to race, which dates, which circuits. So normally should be Formula Four, but uh, after what he has proved recently in the Formula Four UAE taking the championship, we are thinking to something more, but nothing is decided yet. Let's wait and see. Well, exciting times. It's going to be great to have another truly in motorsport. And um, Jano, thanks again. Great to see you. Thank you. Let's hope so and see you soon. I love catching up with Jano again. What a fabulous guy. He remembers his career like it was yesterday. And I feel he gave us a fascinating insight, not only into his career, but into Formula One in general at the time. The way he ended his management contract with Flavio in 2004, what an amazing story. And the more I hear about the Toyota years, the more I appreciate what a missed opportunity they were. The team and Yano could and should have won races together in 2009. And had they done that, Who's to say the team wouldn't still be in Formula One today? Yano, it was great to catch up again. Thank you. And best of luck to your son Enzo on his developing racing career. And before we move on, please send me in any stories or chance meetings or thoughts that you have on Yano. We love hearing from you. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. So send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about the Brackley Boys after last week's show. And many of you seem to enjoy that episode. And you sent in some cracking stories, of which here are a few. Robin Fisher got in touch to say this fabulous episode. Really enjoyed the stories from the Braun GP year in particular. Reckon there's a movie to be made on Brackley's 2009 season. Now that's a great shout, Robin. It would be a fantastic movie. The thing is... Who'd play Jensen? And Ruthie said this, James, as in James Vowles, might have the most soothing voice. Petition for him to do some ASMR. Annabelle's got this great story. After the 2019 Spanish Grand Prix on the flight back to London, while waiting for others to get on board, I looked up and there was James Vowles. I waved like a starstruck child and James said hello to me. Maybe he was actually saying hello to his colleagues behind me. Then I realised I was flying back to London with the Mercedes Formula One team and sitting next to Pete Bonington as well. I was on cloud nine before the plane had even taken off. Well, lucky you, Annabelle. And it came across in the podcast that they're all good blokes, didn't it? And F1 Gareth said, Hi, Tom. I met the Mercedes Formula One team in 2010 at Barcelona Airport, boarding their EasyJet flight home. How times have changed. Shove's reaction at being recognised was priceless. He was visibly taken aback and couldn't wait to tell me about that day in Monaco. What a ledge. Well, Shove is indeed alleged, but they're all great guys, and that's one of the reasons why they're such a brilliant race team. We had loads of feedback last week, thank you, and I'm sorry I couldn't read out all of your messages, but please know that I've read each and every one of them. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Yano, and as ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One, so see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.